All Saints Day means all saints all day. Incredible journeys of faith, heroic holiness. Welcome back to great stories about great saints on Relevant Radio. And the Relevant Radio app. This is Cale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. And talking about great stories about great saints, I'm going to tell you about a great sinner who became a great saint. I'm talking about King David. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. Yes, he was such an incredible and powerful figure in salvation history, responsible for some of the most iconic moments in the Bible. But he also was an adulterer and a murderer who repented and came back to God. It's an incredible account. We're going to dive into his life in this episode of The Faith Explained. I'm going to give you an overview of his personal history, and then we're going to talk about what it all means. In terms of apologetics, in terms of explaining and defending the faith, King David's life is really important for us to know about. And also, it helps us to understand the New Testament and Jesus, the son of David, so much better. Now, the interesting thing about King David is he's one of the first figures in the Old Testament for which we have actual hard archaeological evidence. We're going to get into this more later. But in 1993, an Israeli archaeological team discovered on a black basalt stone an inscription. And this inscription was from the 9th century before Christ. It was in Aramaic. And it's an ancient king bragging about how he had defeated the armies, the vaunted armies, the famous armies of the house of David. And this was found way up north by the Syrian border. Now, there are a bunch of biblical minimalists, scholars who want to say David never existed. He never had a huge kingdom in the Iron Age. This is all made up stuff. Well, here we have it written in stone, the house of David. <laughs> and it must have been a pretty big kingdom, too, for uh, an inscription to be that far north, talking about this far-flung kingdom of David, far from his headquarters in Jerusalem. So more on this later. But we do know that David was, in fact, ruling over a kingdom for about 40 years, between around the year 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. He was a great warrior, and he was also a great writer. I guess you could say he was a Renaissance man long before the Renaissance. Uh what an incredible career, a great military leader, but also the introspective nature of the Psalms, the great spiritual writing that he, that he gave, uh, lasted, of course, up into our own time and is such a great insight into the dealings of God with the human heart. Not only that, his son Solomon, of course, was able to construct the magnificent first temple in Jerusalem and was the wisest man who had ever lived until until another son of David arose, of course, the Son of God, and according to his human nature, his human lineage, a descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. So we know about David, of course, from the books in the Old Testament called First and Second Samuel, uh, First Book of Kings, the First Book of Chronicles. Those are good places to go to learn about his history. Now we know this, David was the youngest son of Jesse. Now, he was the eighth son of Jesse, the youngest of Jesse, and Jesse, of course, belonged to the tribe of Judah. David also was a descendant of Ruth, the great heroine, of course, of the book of Ruth. And David was a young shepherd boy in the vicinity of Bethlehem. One day, the prophet Samuel, of course, picks him out among all the sons of Jesse, who would be 
the next king of Israel? Who did God select? And this is where we have the famous line, men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Yeah, David had some brothers that were taller than him, maybe more athletic, maybe did a little bit better in school. It doesn't matter. God picked David and he anointed him as king. Now, the interesting thing is there already was a king in Israel and his name, of course, was King Saul. The people had clamored for a king and God said, no, 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 no. I, God, should be your king. But they wanted to be like all the nations around them. So God finally relented and gave them Saul. But Saul did some things that were displeasing to the Lord and he needed to be replaced. So upon being anointed as the next king, David just says, I'm just going to keep doing what's in front of me right now. I'm going to go back to herding my sheep. The first time he ever interacted with King Saul, Saul was tormented by demons, and he knew that somehow David was a skillful musician. The king's attendant said, why don't you play for Saul? And he was able to kind of drive these evil spirits away, give Saul some peace. And, and, and Saul's like, I like this guy. I want to keep him around. He's going to be in my court as an official musician. One time, of course, as you know, and this is one of the most famous incidents in the entire Bible, David took on Goliath. Some of the most skilled warriors in Saul's kingdom were terrified of the Philistine champion of Gath. And, and they were just shaking in their boots, shaking in their sandals for 40 days. And David said, I'm not scared of this guy. I've taken on bears. I've taken on lions when tending my sheep. Bring this guy on. Where is he? And he takes a slingshot and five smooth stones. And of course, he kills the giant and then he beheads him. This was an incredible victory. And Saul makes David a commander of his armies, gives him a whole bunch of troops to look after. And this is when David becomes really good friends, BFFs, best friend forever, with Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, David became so successful as a military commander in battling the Philistines, Saul became quite jealous and insecure about David. There was this saying that was floating around Israel, Saul may have killed his thousands, but David has slayed his tens of thousands. So the jealousy was taking root, unfortunately, in Saul. But Saul says, look, I'm going to give you, David, my own daughter. I'm going to give you her hand in marriage. And this was Merav, but he later changed his mind. He took it back. And this is going to become a pattern with Saul. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you this daughter as your wife, but you can have Michal, his second daughter. But here's the deal. Here's the bride price, David. You can have her in marriage if you give me the foreskins of 100 Philistines. You got to kill all these guys and bring these back to me. David's like, okay, I'll do it. So he does it. He absolutely does it. But Saul keeps getting more and more jealous of David. And he actually asked his son, Jonathan, I want you to kill David. I know he's your friend, but I want you to take him out. Jonathan, however, tipped off David to his father's evil plan. And, and David was hidden. And then Jonathan went to, to his dad and said, look, promise me, dad, you're not going to kill David. And Saul says, okay, I pinky promise. David goes back to serving in his army, but... Saul takes, he goes back on his word again. Saul tries to kill David a second time. Michal actually helps David, his wife actually helps David to run away. And he goes to the prophet Samuel in Ramah. But David eventually tries to make some peace with Jonathan and says, look, can you please check with your dad 
make sure that your dad is still not trying to kill me. But unfortunately, he still was. So he keeps running away. He eventually goes and finds a hiding place with the king of Moab, the Moabites. And Saul found out, King Saul finds out, that the priest Ahimelech of Nob actually gave David a weapon to use against him. And Saul was really upset about this. And so Saul sends this guy named Doeg the Edomite to kill 85 priests of Moab. Uh, this is a big slaughter. Anyways, David keeps running away, and he's kind of collecting his own army. He's a little bit like George Washington in the Revolutionary Army, collecting a band of soldiers to try to fight the British. David gets the support of 600 men, and his ragtag band starts going from city to city. They eventually wind up in Ein Gedi. And this is a most dramatic moment in the story of David and Saul. In fact, David kind of sneaks up on Saul. There weren't any porta-potties in Ein Gedi. Saul is relieving himself in a cave, and he's totally vulnerable. He's totally open to attack. David sneaks up on him. He has a perfect chance to kill him, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't want to kill the Lord's anointed king. So what he does do is he cuts off a bit of Saul's cloak that was kind of kind of there. And later on, he confronts him and he says, look at this, I cut off the edge of your cloak. I could have slayed you with my sword, but I didn't do it. And then Saul at this point, he, he just kind of breaks down in tears and he, and he understands that, look, I get it, I get it. Eventually you will be the king, but please promise me this. When you take over, please don't kill me. Please don't kill any of my family members. It was very common to do this in the ancient world. You just killed the family of your enemy, your sworn enemy, so that their sons would not rise up and try to avenge you. So Saul's like, please do not kill my descendants. Please don't wipe out my progeny from the people of God. And David says, I swear to God, I won't do it. But even so, even with this promise, Saul still wants to kill David. I mean, can you believe this? David could have killed King Saul when he was relieving himself. He could have relieved him of his duties as king right then and there, but he didn't do it, and Saul still wants to kill David. Well, eventually, he's pursuing David. David and his followers link up with the Philistine king of Gath. How, how, the irony, he kills, of course, Goliath, the Philistine champion of Gath when he's younger, and then the Philistine king of Gath. He gives David control of the city of Ziklag. Now, this is really important because David uses this position in order to protect the Jews from these desert raiders that are always going through the region. They're trying to attack people. So David would make sure that they didn't attack the Jewish people in Judah. And he, when, he, when he attacks these desert raiders, they're always trying to rob people. He would kind of collect the spoils of war and he would give these things as gifts to the leaders of Judah in the southern. This is where, where, of course, Jerusalem is. And he gives them this booty, if you will. And what he's trying to do, essentially, is bribe the political leaders of Judah so that they will support him as the future king against Saul. Isn't that interesting? Well, David's eventually fighting the Amalekites, and Saul is kind of taken out of play without David having to lift a finger. Tragically, Saul and his son Jonathan, David's best friend, they are both killed in a fight with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And I've actually been there. It's at a historical site now called Bet Shean. And you can see the mountain upon which the Philistines pinned up the bodies of King Saul and Jonathan. It was a great national tra tragedy. 
and a travesty as well. And David, even though Saul was trying to kill him, he still mourned him as the king of Israel. But then the way is now clear for David to take over. He goes to Judah, he goes to Hebron, brings his wives with him. And yes, David, like his son Solomon, also had multiple wives. That never works out in salvation history. When people turn their backs on God's plan for marriage, one man, one woman, there are always complications, there are always major problems. And the people in Judea in the south, they are so happy that David had saved them from these desert nomads that they're more than excited to appoint him as the king. Now, in Israel, the, the southern tribes were in, in the region of Judah, and the northern tribes became known as Israel. And very often they were at war with one another. The, the nation of Israel wasn't always united. And in fact, a son of King Saul, Ishbosheth, is anointed by Abner, the son of Ner, as, as sort of the successor of King Saul over the northern tribes. And for, for a little while, it looks like the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are going to slug it out. But at any rate, Ishbosheth later is killed, that all the tribes of Israel anoint David as king. And he's 30 years old and he's ruling over the united kingdom of Judah. It's kind of interesting because Jesus begins his ministry at the age of 30. Now, Jesus, of course, his main message during his earthly ministry is about the kingdom of God. The only other time the kingdom of God is used in the Bible outside of Jesus is with reference to the kingdom of David. Now, what's also interesting about David's kingdom as well is David engaged in all of these wars in which he expanded his kingdom into Gentile territory. And this is amazing because the kingdom of God brought about by Jesus Christ also includes not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. All the nations, all the peoples of the world. That's why it's Catholic. It's universal. And this also originated with David. How interesting. So he has uh, more wives. He keeps taking more wives. And very often these are political alliances. He has many children, makes all these deals with kings of these other countries. And he sets up this headquarters in Jerusalem, in the city of David. And you can go there. If you go to the Holy Land, you can see the ancient city of David, this massive government complex. Keeps getting under attack, of course. The Philistines keep attacking. They try to capture Bethlehem. David routes them and forces them completely out of Israel. And this is when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This is talked about in the second book of Samuel. And this is what Luke picks up on. He sees Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. There's great typology there. Nathan the prophet comes onto the scene. And, and, and of course, David wants to build a temple for God, for the Ark, the, the presence of the Lord. And of course, God tells David, look, I don't dwell in a, in a temple made of human hands. I, I own all of creation. And you're not going to build this house for me. Why? Because you've got blood on your hands from battle. Your son, Solomon, is going to be the one to do it. Nathan kind of gets this message to David. And David keeps shedding blood. He keeps fighting these wars. He defeats the Moabites, the Edomites. He says, eat them up. Let's defeat the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Arameans. Mostly defensive wars at first, but then he starts building more and more uh, territory. keeps building the empire. It extends over both sides of the Jordan as far as the Mediterranean See, this is an incredible Iron Age kingdom. Jerusalem is the center. Everybody has to pay taxes to Jerusalem, and the pilgrimage 
that happens to Jerusalem on three big feast days uh, in the Jewish calendar, Passover, Shavuot, which is kind of the First Fruits uh, Harvest Festival, and Sukkot, the Festival of Booths, Tabernacles. These are major, major pilgrimage feasts for the Jews. So David has created this vast kingdom. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. We're looking at the life of King David. Despite the fact that he is a man after God's own heart, despite the fact that he is a great military leader, he is someone who has feet of clay. And I think most of us can relate to David because David messed up big time in his personal life. And he had to confess his sins, just as we have to go to confession on a regular basis, although hopefully our sins aren't as major league as David. But even these major league sins, God can forgive as long as we repent. And that's the key. Maybe the worst thing David did was while his troops were at war, and David should have been with them, he wasn't doing what he ought to have been doing. This is a great question to ask yourself throughout the day, even not just during seasons of your life. Am I doing what I ought to be doing right now? David was bored. David was one night up on his rooftop patio walking around. And in this great government complex in the kingdom of David in Jerusalem, the city of David, he could overlook all of the other homes. And there's a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who was bathing on her rooftop, you know, on these hot summer nights. And her name used to be Sheba, but when David saw her bathing, she became known as Bathsheba. No, I'm only kidding. That's not in the Bible. But uh, David, of course, lusted after this woman. Well, it just so happens that she is the wife of one of his top generals, Uriah the Hittite. He abuses his authority as king. He calls for her, has her brought to him, and he sleeps with her. He commits adultery. She becomes pregnant with David's child. And David's like, how am I going to cover this up? And the cover-up is always worse than the crime itself. What he tries to do is absolutely desperate, and it is absolutely reprehensible. He calls Uriah home from the battlefront and says, Look, Uriah, I think you need some time off. You've been fighting really hard. You've been doing a great job. Why don't you go home and visit your wife? The two of you haven't seen each other for a long, long time. And in fact, he even brings Uriah to his table. He gives him a lot of wine, maybe overserves him a little bit or a lot hoping that Uriah will go home, have relations with his wife, and then he can plausibly deny that this child is his. However, the plan doesn't work. Uriah is so loyal to David that he refuses to go home. He says, how can I go home and be with my wife when my own soldiers are fighting on the battlefront? They're not with with their families. That's not right. So he sleeps on the doorstep of King David's home. He will not even go to his own house. And then David says, Oy vey, I've got a big time problem here. So he does something even more dastardly. He sends Uriah back to the fighting and he sends him up. He gives orders for Uriah to be put at the very front of the battle, which is very strange for one of the top generals to be sent there. And not only does he say, put Uriah where the fighting is the most fierce, He orders the troops to pull back around him. So he is left exposed, naked, if you will, on the battlefield where he is easily killed uh, by their enemies. And so with Uriah now out of the way, David thinks the coast is clear. No one's going to find out. He marries Bathsheba. And of course, uh, their child is going to be born. And he thinks everything's fine. (laughs) 
but he's forgotten about the fact that God sees and knows everything. And God has a prophet named Nathan. Nathan, even though David could have lopped off his head, Nathan boldly confronts David about this. And this is really Shakespearean, if you will. Uh, Shakespeare should have written a play about this. Nathan confronts David. He gives this incredible speech about a, a poor man who has this beautiful ewe lamb. It's his prized possession. And a rich man comes and takes this lamb, kills it, and makes a dinner for his friends, uh, despoils this guy. And David's like, this is outrageous. Who is this guy? I, I want this guy slaughtered. I want this guy killed who did this. And this is when Nathan says to him, you are the man. And David, to his credit, to his credit, he repents. He repents. So forgiveness is not the problem here. God does forgive. But there are consequences, real consequences to David's. And this is really around the time where he composes Psalm 51, this great prayer of confession and repentance. And maybe you've been assigned Psalm 51 as reading, you know, in the sacrament of confession. That may or may not have happened to me at one point, but at any rate, uh, David is very contrite. But unfortunately, the son uh, that is conceived by Bathsheba in this illicit union with David, this son must die to cover David's sin. Now, this is really interesting. Because another son of David, if you will, according to his human nature, descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, he also must die to cover the sins of his ancestor David, yours and mine, and every human person who has ever lived and ever sinned. If they turn to him and repent, Christ will forgive them. So the son of David, Jesus, pays the price but it doesn't take away, of course, the consequences of David's sin. And another thing happens to David because of this. There's kind of a curse on his home, if you will. There's going to be rebellion from within the house of David itself. Now, Bathsheba is able to conceive another son. You know him well, Solomon. But tragically, this, the story of David uh, is like a soap opera. It's very cinematic. Unfortunately, his son Amnon commits an absolutely wicked deed, uh, the rape of Tamar, the half-sister of Amnon. And Absalom, David's son, the brother of Tamar, kills Amnon in vengeance. Absalom runs away. But David, really, he, he longs for his son Absalom. This, this, this is a big saga that takes place. Joab, of course, convinces David, you need to allow Absalom to return but Absalom has other ideas. Absalom is a very, very charismatic guy in his own right, very handsome. He is extremely popular with the people in Israel. Forty years, 40 years after Samuel anoints David as king, Absalom collects an army of his own, 200 men, and they go to Hebron, and he has the intention, he has the perfect intention of trying to rebel against his own dad and take over the kingdom of David. The men of Hebron's, Hebron support Absalom in this. And they were actually kind of ticked off because David moved the kingdom from Hebron to Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, we'll support you, Absalom. And this is a very, very dangerous time. Also, the Benjamites kind of support Absalom too, because of course, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. They're not happy about Saul being replaced by David. They kind of want to avenge him. David is really, really worried about this, that Absalom's going to try to kill him. So he flees Jerusalem and he leaves 10 concubines 
to guard his royal palace. The priest, Zadok, the high priest, Abiathar, the priest, they stay there as well. And then he also puts in a spy. There's a guy named Hushai the Archite. And he says, you need to stay there and you need to be a spy for me. Absalom goes to Jerusalem. There's no army to defend the palace. He takes over Jerusalem. He sleeps with David's concubines. But Hushai, this guy, this spy, he actually kind of weasels his way in with Absalom and he gains his trust. And he tells King David, this is what Absalom's planning to do. This is, this is his battle plan. So David's able to prepare. He gets his troops together and he kills, he slaughters 20,000 of Absalom's soldiers, including his own son, Absalom. David gets back onto the throne. So th this is just, a, I mean, the life of David, we could go on and on about this, but eventually David does come to his earthly end. One of the things that the Bible says about David, and this is, if you will, his epitaph. It's on his tombstone, as it were. If God can say this about you and me, then we've lived a good life. Because the scriptures say of King David, when he had fulfilled God's purpose in his generation, then he died. So hopefully you and I can also fulfill God's purpose in our generation, because he's got a plan for you and me. As Cardinal Newman said, he has some definite service for me and for you as well. So, of course, the son of David, King Solomon, takes over, builds the temple, and really lays this foundation for the great kingdom of David, which continued on through his successors as kings. And this is why uh, this great inscription that we talked about at the top of the show, the Tel Dan inscription that was discovered near the Syrian border in 1993, in stone is written, the house of David. David was a real historical person. These things actually did happen. We credit David, of course, for writing about half of the book of Psalms. Amazing. David is at least the source behind many of these Psalms. And he really helped to collect all, all the materials that were needed to construct the temple that Solomon uh, really got going. And also, of course, there is a great Jewish tradition that the Messiah, not, and, and, and uh, clearly there are many Jews who still believe the Messiah hasn't come yet, but many did believe in Jesus during his own day. This, this concept has never really gone away, that the Messiah would build a third temple. The second temple, of course, was built by, really under the watch of Herod the Great, that was the temple that existed in Jesus' time. There's always been this talk of a third temple. Well, this temple is the church, the temple of the body of Jesus Christ, the mystical body of Christ, the church, this temple made of living stones, you and me, in the Catholic Church, which was founded by the Son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's why in Matthew's Gospel, at the beginning, it says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And it has these three lists of generations, 14 generations, 14, 14, and 14. Why? Because the spelling of David's name, according to Gematria, adds up to 14. It's like Matthew screaming at us, David, 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 Jesus is the son of King David, who is such a fantastic saint and someone who we can really look at his life and say, God could forgive him, and he could forgive me and have a great plan for my life as well. David is, of course, proof that great sinners can become great saints. For The Faith Explained, I'm Cale Clark. We'll catch you in the next episode. Peace.